Welcome to the Wise Women Diaries podcast. This is where shame and victimhood die. I am a woman that questions everything, so this podcast is a reflection of that. Here we speak on non-mainstream perspectives, like healing our childhood wounds, learning to trust ourselves, the voice of fear versus intuition, and how children are our teachers. We discuss what it looks like to own your power as a woman and step out of the medical paradigm. That's why I am obsessed with interviewing women who trust their bodies and babies in home birth and free birth and their wild journey from maiden to mother. Ultimately, this podcast is for women who want to thrive and have inner peace, learning how to take radical responsibility for their life and shed victimhood for good. I'm Marin. I am a wife. I love, adore my husband. We've been married for almost eight years and I am a mom of six with one on the way and my kids are six and under. So I have a lot of tiny people <laughs> in my house. Um, I get asked often when we're out and about if I'm a daycare <laughs> because it's pretty comical, but it's great. And right now, where we're kind of at in life, my husband got out of the military and we moved to North Carolina. So we are in North Carolina. We would love to, just like everybody, pretty much, we would love to have a little more land than we have right now. And we're working towards that, but we're learning how to be okay with it being a longer process than we were hoping for. <laughs> but it's good. So we're in pursuit of that. We live intergenerationally with my mother-in-law. So she moved in about a year ago, which has been such a blessing. She raised five kids herself, so I've been learning a lot from her. And just having her around, um, she raised my husband very similarly to how I was raised, and we really appreciate how we were raised. So it's just been a very seamless uh, transition to having her having her live with us, which is a big goal of ours. We would love to see life be brought in general more home and more community-based and less outsourced to strangers. So I just started homeschooling and I'm more Charlotte Mason, very gentle type homeschooler, I think, because <laughs> it's the opposite of how I did school growing up. And so I've been loving it which is a, a huge blessing, but my oldest is only six. So we are very gently treading into the homeschooling world. And it's been a blessing to have people around me that also see education the same way. So I've been able to learn from like-minded women at church who are also very gently minded toward education. Um, and we did move here for our church. I should have said first, I'm, I'm a Christian. Um, so that is a huge piece of who I am. And I was raised a Christian, typical 1990s. I'm almost 30. So 1990s, early 2000s, evangelical veggie tales kid. <laughs> uh, I'm sure plenty of people know what I'm talking about. Can I identify with that? Uh, and I grew up in a, a very, very big, big mega church. So 
it felt very big and it was something you could kind of show up to on Sunday and learn the right answers. But everything even back then was very fractured. So school being publicly educated for a majority of my childhood, I was fractured from my parents. Uh, I was pretty much raised by my peers. And then even at church on Sundays, again, the family is fractured and the parents go to do one thing and all the kids are fractured into their peer groups. And so I felt like I didn't, that's the one thing about my childhood. I'm sure there's more. I say the one thing, but that's the main thing that I would like to do different with my own kids. I, my parents and I are very close. They're still married and which is very unheard of for the group that I grew up in. So I'm very appreciative for how my parents raised me and the foundation that they, that they set for me. And really the, the one thing I would like to do differently is rate getting to raise my kids <laughs> myself and in our community make it like a more communal varied ages and intergenerational a more authentic life experience I think to what life is like more in the big world <laughs> and so uh anyways growing up in that environment I had a very firm foundation of like my identity until I was homeschooled in third and fourth grade. And then when I went to fifth grade, that was really when the big things, I went to public school and that was when everything started shifting for me. Being the good girl was no longer, it was starting to not be smiled upon by people. Adults loved it. But as I went into middle school and then into high school, being the goody two shoes and the teacher's pet and the Christian girl is no longer something that people like. <laughs> and I think at that point, the foundation of my identity was not rooted deeply enough in my faith for it to anchor me. And it was very easy for me to be dr to drift into what other people wanted me to be. And back then, my we tested Myers-Briggs in high school. And I remember testing, I think it was ENTJ. It was the classic type A firstborn leader thing. Because those are all words people had given to me of like who outgoing whatever, who I was. And so I felt like I learned how to be that. Not necessarily, I don't know how authentic that was actually to me, but that was what the system really wanted from me. And so, and for reference now, I'm INFJ, <laughs> which is, I'm very intuitive but I'm not recharged by being around a bunch of people. And it actually took a long time for me to accept that about myself because I thought everybody wanted ENTJ or whatever. Um, and so anyways, that's been a whole journey for me, but that really began in high school where I just was losing my identity. And I, had some trauma with the cheerleading squad that I was on. 
And I was getting physically hit in the face every day if I would do something wrong. And I didn't realize it. Now I look back and having an understanding of healing that I do now, then I got injured and was not able to finish the season. And then the next season, the first competition morning, I woke up and my throat was swollen. I couldn't swallow. I could hardly talk. And I knew I was sick. I thought I just had strep throat or something. Turns out I had full-blown mono. And it was with like the pharyngeal mucosa was what was affected for me. I ended up going to the doctor and my liver was so swollen that it was sticking out beyond my ribs. My spleen was enlarged. And now looking back, I know that was my body having a physical response to, and I don't know really why that event triggered it because it was about a year later, but for whatever reason, I had had a break from the trauma. My body was able to kind of recover. And that was like a huge physical and emotional trigger for my life starting to spiral. And I I know this now looking back, seeing that connection is just incredible. But all the physical health issues that started coming out with the self-devaluation and that identity crisis Another thing that was really born in me was a lot of deceitfulness because I wanted to be able to keep up this part of me wanted to keep up this facade of no, I'm, I'm the good girl. I'm the one, the morally superior one I am. But at the same time, I also saw, well, nobody likes this person. Nobody and so I was like, fine, if me doing good doesn't equal me getting good anymore, I'm just going to go do all these stuff that I've been wa- secretly wanting to do this whole time. I no longer had a motivation anymore. The only motivating factor was other people's approval of who I was. And so when that was no longer there, it was so easy for me to just go, just rebel, but still try to keep up this front to my parents and wanting their approval and sneaking around behind their back and hiding. And it just physically destroyed me too. So seeing all the physical issues that I had back then is just so connected. And interestingly enough, acne is like the last thing that I'm tackling now. Funny enough, you can't really tell on the video here, but it's still, I've been working with somebody and It's incredible how I think I've worked through a lot of the root stuff, but now it's on the surface. And she's like, no, this is good. I know acne is annoying, but this is kind of the last, like, this is a good sign that it's flaring up as we tackle this stuff. So just being able to learn that my body, my physical body is giving me cues about areas that I can work on or potentially go back and kind of seek out and it stinks, but dig up a little bit. And I don't know if that's always appropriate, but for me, it's been so helpful and healing to be able to do that and making sense of a lot of the things that have happened since then. So I just, I felt like that was super important for me to like frame the story with that foundation. And going into college, I 
was very, still very rebellious <laughs> compared to how I had grown up and who I had thought I wanted to be. I would have never said that I did not believe in God. And I would have never said that I wasn't a Christian. The whole time I would have told you, of course I believe in God. Of course I'm a Christian. But my heart had become so hardened. It's it's almost hard for me to remember what it felt like to be me back then because I'm. it's almost like a dissociated couple of years that I was in there. That was very, very strange. And I look back and I actually went back and read some of my journals because I started journaling when I went to college. And I remember like I read writing down, I, I don't want to go drink this weekend. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do this. I don't want to live like this anymore. This is terrible. <laughs> like I knew and I would still go do it anyways. And Monday morning I'd write in my journal. I did it again. And, but there was this disconnect for me between this is what I should or shouldn't be doing as opposed like, but only to please somebody else. There was no intrinsic desire to like do the healthy thing or to honor the Lord with how I'm living my life. There was no intrinsic. It was, and again, when all you're trying to do is please somebody else. That is pleasing. Going out and drinking is pleasing to all the friends that I had at the time. That's exactly what they wanted me to do. They loved me. I was the life of the party. But there's something in me that was not, I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't stop myself. And I look back and it just makes where I am now so much more miraculous because there was no way I was getting myself out of that. No way I could have reached in into myself and saved myself from myself like that because I wanted to, but I, I couldn't. Anyways, um, I went and visited another college one weekend and I ended up getting drugged at a bar. And there's a specific moment I remember, the last moment I remember, and I woke up in somebody's apartment in bed next to somebody. I had no idea who it was. And I still have no idea who it was because I just got my stuff and got out of there as fast as I could. Thankfully, I was able to contact my friend. My phone had like, that I was with, my phone had like 1% battery and I just sent her my location and then my phone died. And thankfully, I went and sat outside and just prayed that she would come get me. And she somehow got my message because I didn't know where I was and I did not want to go back in there to like be like, can I have a phone charger? And I knew something had happened. And so anyways... Uh, she did come and, and got me and I didn't say anything because it was like, well, this is what they expect from you. Like, what are you going to say all of a sudden that like you're not okay, <laughs> whatever. But I, I couldn't focus my eyes. I couldn't hardly see. And she drove us back to our to our school and she parked outside our dorm and went inside. I was like, I'll be in in a minute. And I just sat there and I sobbed. And that was like my moment of, this is, this has gone too far. And I just remember praying, Lord, I got baptized when I was eight and I thought I knew you and I thought I knew me, but clearly I've missed something along the way because I wouldn't be in this situation. And I thought I prayed the right prayer and I thought I did the right stuff. And here I am. So 
if you're real, you're going to have to step into this mess with me because I don't know how to find you. And I just prayed that. And uh, the next weekend was um, uh, we had finals. And then I, I went home and ended up finding out I was pregnant while I was home for Christmas on Christmas break. And I was on birth control that just like no part of this should have happened. It should not have happened. And I, anyways, my first thought was I have to, I have to just make this go away. I have to make this go away. And so I, I took a pregnancy test on Christmas day. I don't know why I did that to myself, but I had my entire extended family downstairs and I'm like sitting up in my mom's bathroom. Like, what am I going to do? And so I went in her closet and closed the door and sat in her clothes. Like, so just in case, so nobody could hear me. And I called and I was calling an abortion clinic. And of course they didn't answer because it was Christmas. And I had the thought, I was like, you just told God that you wanted to surrender and su- and start over. This is probably not the best way to start it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this I'm going to make a conscious choice here. Because again, I was defaulting back to how much money do I have? How can I keep this a secret? How can I hide it? How can I? And I didn't have enough money to do it in such a way that I wouldn't have to ask somebody else for money. And so... God just kept putting roadblocks in the way. He's like, you can't lie. You cannot be deceitful anymore. Can't lie anymore. It's not good for you. Anyways, I knew that my mom had had a history of abortion. And so, and she had told me, if this ever happens to you or your friends, please tell me. And so I knew, I was like, well, I have a shot here. She was always so protective of me growing up. And so I thought, I was like, I'm going to make her die. Like, she's going to have a heart attack if I tell her because she has tried so hard to keep me from this. And I called her upstairs and I was like, "Ah." and I told her and she was like, okay, we can do this. And I was like, okay, I guess we can do this. And that was just all I needed. Um, I did decide to keep it a secret. So I went back to school and that was the semester I was supposed to, I was a year ahead and because I had done a year of college when I was in high school. So I was planning to go to nursing school. That was my plan since I think ninth grade, I wanted to be a nurse. And so my I was on the trajectory to get into nursing school a year ahead. And that was the semester that I was applying to nursing school. So I just wore big baggy sorority t-shirts and tried to pretend like everything was normal. <laughs> And thankfully, you know, with your first pregnancy, most people don't really show super early, but I made it through that whole semester only telling one person. There's a girl in my sorority who my actually is my daughter's middle name. I named her after her. My sweet friend, Anna, I knew she was a Christian. She's the only girl that I, for some reason, felt comfortable talking to in my sorority. And I sat her down at the Mexican restaurant and told her, I was like, look, Looking back, I'm like, she's a poor sophomore in, in college, and she's got this girl coming to her like, yo, I'm pregnant. Please help me. <laughs> she really didn't know what to do with herself, but she was so kind to me, and she discipled me and taught me how to read my Bible, and it was really just the two of us because I did not feel comfortable letting anybody else in at that point. 
I did finally tell my dad. Um, slowly, I eventually told my brother and my grandparents. And I think beyond that, I let <laughs> my poor mom, she's like, can I please tell one of my friends? And I told her no. And then I ended up telling her yes, because she was bearing this heavy, heavy load and being kind to me and not telling even my dad until I was ready. And so I let her tell one of her friends. And at the time I was really wrestling with, well, I was planning to parent because I felt like making any other decision was selfish. And so I had written off adoption in my mind, but I hadn't really made, I didn't really have a vision for what it was going to look like for me to parent either. Other than that, my parents were supportive of that. And I remember exactly where I was when I decided to pursue adoption. I guess it's important to say too, I'd gone to a crisis pregnancy center with my mom before I went back to school because I knew I would not believe that it was really true unless I saw or like heard a heartbeat. And I went in that day and they said, well, it's too late. The ultrasound tech leaves at four, you know, whatever. And I just broke down. I was like, I'm not leaving here until I know that this is real. And sure enough, so a sweet lady decided she stayed late and she did the ultrasound for me. And um, she started crying because she saw the baby was due on my birthday. And so I just, in that moment, I heard that heartbeat and part of me just like died inside. But then when she said that, I was like, okay, God, <laughs> I, I, I acknowledge you in this situation. It was just like his little wink to me. That's like, I'm, I am in the, I am here with you. So anyways, I went to an OBGYN and of course I'm in anatomy in class learning about all this stuff. I had interned with at an urgent care for several years at that point. So I knew a lot about medically how my body was working and what was going on. And I had, for all the birth nerds out there, I had a two-vessel cord. And so, of course, they freaked out. <laughs> and we're like, instantly, we have to monitor you all the time because you have a two-vessel cord. And so I got a lot of ultrasounds, which ended up, now I would not do that. But it was sweet to me at the time because that was some of the only time I was going to get with her was getting to see her um, on that, on those ultrasounds. So I, you know, getting to have all those pictures and, and sweetness, it was very sweet. Um, even though now I would not do that. It was good at that time. And so through a mutual friend, well, I was going to go through a adoption or like an adoption agency, but they are going to, in order to prove that I didn't know who the father was, I would have had to go to court and basically prove legally, like tell the whole, relive the whole story before a judge so that they could determine like, okay, we can sign you off so that the adoption agency is not liable basically for if some father comes out of the woodwork and is like, hey, <laughs> she can't have rights to sign the baby away because it's mine too. So I understand why. But at the time, I was way too fragile to do that. I was like, I cannot go do that. So we just, and but if you go through a private, like just through an attorney, 
and another like you find basically find your own family, you don't have to do that. So I was like, all right, if I'm going to pursue adoption, that's going to be the way that I go. And sweetly enough, the one friend that I let my mom share with, she knew of three families that were potentially seeking to adopt. Um, And two of them were young families that couldn't have kids. And that was what I thought I wanted. I was like, oh, that would be a sweet gift to give someone. And I I don't know if I'm going to hop on my adoption soapbox yet. We'll see if, we'll see. But she, she came back. She let those families know that there was this option for them and that it was a little girl. And one family came back saying, no, we feel called to international adoption. And then another fam- the other family came back saying, no, we feel called to a boy. So because it's a girl. <laughs> kind of like, we don't want this baby because it's a girl. <sighs> Anyways. And so there was the third family was an older couple. They're my parents' age, funny enough. And they had miraculously gotten pregnant. And ha- she was not supposed to have kids. But she had a daughter who was six or seven at the time. And they were not – the wife had been thinking about adoption, but the husband was like, mm, no. But anyways, the Lord ended up softening his heart, um, and they were both like, well, let's talk about it. Let's see. And both of us really wanted an, to, it to be an open adoption so that if she has questions one day, she could come and ask me herself, and they wouldn't have to bear all of that. Um, especially knowing what I know now with adoption, I th- it's a beautiful thing for her to get to have some, some closure and some relationship, um, as they determine in the future. But anyways, it seemed like a, a great fit. And so we pursued that. And, um, my hope was that she would be born early so I could make it to nursing school because, I didn't know. I was due like two days after nursing school was supposed to start. And I was praying the whole time, please <laughs> let me have this baby early. Asking my doctor, how early can I be induced? Like I just, I so badly want it to be over with. And I ended, I got to three weeks before school was starting. And I ended up emailing my professors saying, I'm, I'm not going to be there probably. <laughs> I had no idea what healing looked like after birth. And nobody told me that either. All anybody told me was, like my OB was like, you should probably not go straight to school. You should probably take some time off. But didn't tell me, like, you're probably going to bleed for six weeks and you're going to have to dry up your milk. And you're like, nobody told me that. And you're going to have to heal. The last thing anybody told me was that I was going to, the depth of the healing that was going to have to happen. Anyways, I ended up having her on the first day of school because my water was leaking. And to this day, I don't actually know if my water was leaking. They were just, I was 39 plus five. And we called them and they're like, why don't you just come in? We'll check. And sure enough, they're like, you're like a centimeter. (laughs) And yes, your water broke. I don't know. I have a sneaky feeling They were just trying to be kind to me, knowing the situation. (laughs) They were like, let's just let this be done. 
Um, which of course nowadays, now I would not do that. But at the time, it ended up being good timing. Um, and I guess I'll, a little aside is, as funny as it is, I've always been a very naturally minded person. I think part of that is being a Christian. When you believe there's an intelligent designer, there's something that draws you to nature. I always wanted a farm. I lived in suburbia. There is no reason for me to ever get googly-eyed about a farm. Um, and natural childbirth was something that was funny enough. I'd always, I'd kind of, I was like, it doesn't make sense to like go mess with it so much. Just even as a kid, I was like, I'm going to do natural childbirth. But it's funny. I almost made a, I won't call it a subconscious decision because I was conscious about it. But I knew I did not want to go. I was like, I just want the epidural. I just, it's almost like I was protecting myself in a weird way from having the experience that I knew would change me. And knowing that I was not going to leave the hospital with that baby, it's almost like, or I wasn't supposed to leave the hospital with that baby. It's almost like I, it was a weird protective thing that I intuitively knew if I birth this baby naturally, she's going to come home with me. Like, I'm not going to be able to let her go. And so that was a very strange thing that I can only see now in retrospect. But I think it was true for me. I, I really, really do. Um, and I had the whole hospital special, as I like to call it, induction, 24 hours, um, epidural. Um, they had given me fentanyl I, through IV before because they're like, well, if you don't want the epidural yet, you could just pro like wait a, to wait a little longer. And I knew what fentanyl was because I was in the nursing world and I was like, Surely they're joking. Like, is this really what they're going to give me? But I let them give it to me. And I woke up, like, I basically passed out. And an hour later, woke up to a huge contraction and just, like, barfed everywhere. It made me feel horrific. And I was like, do not give me that again. <laughs> like, well, you can only have two doses of it anyway. Um because it could be dangerous to the baby if we give it to you too close to delivery. And now I look back, I'm like, are you freaking kidding me, man? Anyway, so I got the epidural. The baby was born in two pushes. I tore just a tiny bit. It could have been so much worse. Um, but yeah, I got to spend 24 hours with her in the hospital. And I think I knew um, around the 24-hour mark, I was like, I need to either they need to come and be with her because she couldn't leave, I think, for 48 hours or something. I was like, I need to go. If I'm going to follow through with this, I need to leave because we're getting it's getting kind of too close now for me. Um, and thank there was just a beautiful pass off, pass over, like passing of, of her to them and the, the sweetness of, of that. I, I did ultimately decide on adoption because the, the thing for me was I wanted her to have a father. And knowing how important 
that had been to me growing up and I not knowing if I could, knowing that I myself could not be all of that for her because that's just not how God, he didn't create me to be all of that. I really wanted her to have that. Um, And that was the more selfless, I guess, side of things. But it was also a selfish decision. And people always talk about it like a, like it's 100% selfless. And it is, it is hard. But at the time, I wanted to go back to what I was doing. And that is a hard thing that I'm going to probably have to confront with her later and probably apologize for. Um, I would not change anything. And I don't have any regrets because I think this is the story that God had for her just as much as for me and for that family. But that doesn't mean that there's not brokenness in there. And there's not something that one day I don't need to go to her and say, look, I was thinking about my future. And yes, I was thinking about yours too, of course. But I'm sorry if that hurts you to to know that I wanted to get back to nursing school. Anyways, I'm so willing to confront that with her. Um, and I think that is a beauty of, of being a Christian is knowing that I'm going to screw up and I don't have to trick myself into thinking that I didn't screw up and I don't have to try to trick myself, like cope by trying to convince myself that I didn't do anything wrong. And I think that's been so key in my healing journey, even from the, I have a hard time even calling it sexual assault because I don't know what I was like. I don't know if he was the one that drugged me. I don't know the full story, but I know the life that I was living was, I, and I know what I was choosing to engage in at the time and being able to just take ownership and take responsibility for my piece of the puzzle when I don't get to know who he is and I don't get to know what happened. I don't, I don't get to know any of that. So that can either crush you or surrender it to the Lord. Say, if you wanted me to know this information, I would know it. And so I can take ownership of my piece of this puzzle. And I truly, truly think that has been paramount in my healing and being able to be okay and talk about this even without panicking. And there was PTSD, smell the smell of marijuana panic attack, the smell or seeing like being in any kind of bar type environment with flashing lights, panic attack. It's not to say that there was not physical ramifications of the trauma that the situation was that gave me clues as I bet I was around marijuana that night, or I bet I was obviously the bar was flashy, you know, that gave me pieces of the picture, but even those triggers are now gone. And I didn't, I, there was a time I didn't think that those triggers were ever going to go away. But anyways, I, I had her on the first day of school and that was a Monday and I had had so many health issues that I just told everyone in my nursing cohort, I told everyone I was sick and I couldn't make it back. And in the meantime, funny enough, I was supposed to start immunoglobulin infusions because I basically had no immune system, but then I got pregnant and my immunologist is like, well, let's just wait. We're, let's not do anything. Let's wait till after you have your baby and we'll go from there. And I was healed. It's like, I don't know how, but I'm sure physiologically your body having to 
focus on growing another human (laughs) on top of the emotional, spiritual release that that pregnancy and birth was of my old life kind of getting shed and being reborn. Like I had a spiritual rebirth in my car that day. (laughs) And then after she was born, I was a new person. I had gone from being a maiden to being a mother. And I didn't realize the depth of that (laughs) at the time. And so I thought I could just shove myself right back into what I was doing before and just pretend like nothing had ever happened. Um, But thankfully my body was healed and I've never had immune issues since, but that also matches up with the self, all the self devaluation conflict. And in that it was almost like I needed something that deep to happen in my life in order to pull it all out. Um, But anyways, I went back to, I moved into my apartment that Saturday and started school the next Monday. And it was a very hard semester, but it was in some ways good for me to get away from home because she lived 15 minutes from me at home. So I think if I had taken that semester off and stayed close to home, it would have, knowing I was 15 minutes away from my daughter, (laughs) would have probably been very, very hard and not good for me. So going back to school was ideal at that time. And I started, I was great. I was great at what I was doing. I became the president of my nursing cohort. I was like, great, I get to move on with my life. Um, until the next, I ended up having to move out of my apartment because I had a roommate that would not stop smoking weed in the apartment and I was having panic attacks. So I ended up moving into a house with some Christians, um, some Christian girls I had met. And that was another healing experience, getting to be around people that were not from my sorority, that were not, that just out continually like moving outside of the world that I was in with the same tracks I was trying to be a DD and for the people, I was just trying to stay as much in my world as I could have stayed in without participating. And I eventually was like, I can't, I I have to physically remove myself from that whole world. And I hit my OBGYN clinical the next semester and I could not do it. I could not watch even a video of a baby being born because, and thankfully my instructor knew and because I had told them, I had figured out this is this thing they need to know about me (laughs) that I just walked through this. And so she knew and she saw me excuse myself. It makes me emotional to remember this. She saw me excuse myself one day and she met me in the bathroom. I was sitting on the floor of the bathroom sobbing and she sat down and she cried with me and gave me a big hug. And she goes, honey, you need to take some time off. <laughs> and I was like, I know. <laughs> so from then on, I finally listened to somebody telling me to take a break. And in that time, I had all the time in the world to pray, to read my Bible, to honestly mope a little bit. <laughs> I was very mopey and just kind of grief. It was just grief. So I was finally able to grieve that it was a good season that brought a lot of 
healing. I had a great counselor at the time too. And eventually I decided I need to leave this place. And so I decided to transfer. I decided to stop nursing altogether um, because it was not the kind of helping people that I thought I was going to be doing. And at that point, I had been so changed myself that I was realizing too that I think there's better ways to to do this. I want to get to people before we're here. (laughs) And a lot of what I'm giving you to heal you is not healing you. It's not helping you. And that just bothered me. I think at my core, I would, I could not have told you that then, but now looking back, I really think that was ultimately what made me okay with walking away. And it shocked everyone because I was the president of the cohort and I was good at it and whatever. And it was just, that's who I was. It was part of my identity. And so choosing to step away from that was scary for my parents. It was very scary for me. But that was what set me on the wild goose chase that my life has become. That was the first time I really stepped outside what literally anybody would have told me was wise. And I did the irresponsible thing. And that is the phrase that I love to use for our family is we are faithfully irresponsible. Because a lot of times walking faithfully looks irresponsible to most people. And learning that that's okay has been something that just transformed my life continually over the past decade, because that was 10 years ago. And so I decided to move. I found another, I wanted to move for family services, because of course, now looking back, duh, my motherhood had been awakened and I didn't have another way to channel it into something. I didn't have a boyfriend. I wasn't getting married. And I thought to myself, plus, once somebody finds this out about me, no good Christian guy that I knew, because the Christian guys I knew, I hate to paint this picture, but this is how I saw it. This is truly legitimately how I saw it. They were not very masculine. I felt like they couldn't, they're very emotional, and I felt like they could not handle something like that. And they were looking for the perfect squeaky clean kind of a person. And that was just not super attractive to me, but it was also did not feel very attainable for me. So I was like, well, I guess I'm either going to have to compromise and marry somebody or (laughs) date, marry, whatever, somebody who's not a Christian. And maybe I can (laughs) flirt to convert, which is so dumb. Don't do that. But maybe I... (laughs) that, or I'm just going to have to find someone who's willing to take me on basically that I'm not really attracted to. That's not very masculine, but you know, what can you do? That was my perspective at the time, but I had let go of dating for, I was like, that's just probably not going to happen for me. So I transferred the only school that had the degree program undergrad Instead of a math, most of this fa- the family services degrees that I was looking for were postgraduate. And I was like, I want something undergrad was at the school that I got pregnant at. <laughs> that was the only school in the state that had the program undergrad. And I was like, no freaking way. I'm never going back there. And so I was like, do I just drop out altogether? 
what do I do? And anyways, I, one of my good friends ended up, she was uh, on staff with a campus ministry and she transferred to do ministry at that school that same year. And I was like, all right, if she can go and I know I'll have her there, maybe I can do it. Transferred there. Everyone thought I was nuts. I ended up meeting my now husband the first week there at church. And I had not been going to church because of I had grew up in church this way. But now I was reading my Bible and learning. I was like, the Lord is so different from how he was presented to me growing up. But if I just read my Bible, just read the Bible, I don't need to go to church. It's kind of like what I thought. I was like, I don't need that. And anyways, all the girls I was living with at the time went to this one little Presbyterian church, the very uh, conservative. It was the church, the kind of church that we poo-pooed growing up. That was like, there's no rock band. It's not cool. It's all just dead, you know, old people that are just clinging to their religion, you know. That was the caricature that had been painted of the, these little small town churches. Um, and I was like, fine, I'll go with my roommates. And it was like, oh, this is what church can be? You're actually like reading from the Bible and teaching. And it was the woman at the well, John 4, which is the perfect thing for me to hear because I was I felt like that woman. And him, the pastor, just teaching like who Jesus is to this woman. I was like, okay, I can see why people go to church. This is encouraging. <laughs> but I met him in line after the... Uh, at a fellowship meal that they had afterwards. Um, and he was an ROTC guy. So he was army going into the army, the opposite of what I had. And all his friends were the same. All these guys at this church were like these big, masculine, strong, soldiery type, athletic, like, but they were so wise. And I was like, I've never seen this combination of person in my life. Usually it's, you know, anyways, uh, the caricature of that kind of man was so negatively looked upon, but it was what I was attracted to. I was attracted to that strong. I knew I couldn't hurt him. Like it was just so it's hard to explain, but I think, I think you get it. And what he was in pursuit of, I knew he loved the Lord, which was important to me. But how he pursued me was decisive and it was clear and it was, I'm pursuing marriage. So if you're not interested in going that way, I don't have time for you, kind of. And just the decisiveness and the masculine, the, the healthy, godly masculinity in him was so attractive to me. And it made me feel so safe. Like people really, really hate the idea of a, of a wife submitting to her husband. But when you have a truly godly man, I feel like it's the safest place I can be. It's like, I saw where I got myself by myself. <laughs> it wasn't good. And so having this beautiful relationship of, it just changed my perspective of what marriage could even be. And so we got married eight months later. <laughs> he was a year ahead of me in school. So we quickly knew, all right, either I'm going to, I need to drop out 
and go with him or we can try and wait a year, whatever. And we were like, that's dumb. I don't really like what I'm doing anyways. So I'll just drop out. Let's go be married. Let's just start our family, whatever. And so that's what we did. Another very irresponsible thing to most people to do (laughs) is to get married after knowing each other for eight months and then dropping out of school to go be a wife. Um, (laughs) Very dumb to most people. And we had decided too, hey, the fruit of marriage is supposed to be children. Like it's kind of how God said, be fruitful and multiply. Like if it happens, it happens. We're not going to like try to dugger it and have as many kids as we could possibly have. But we're also not, I'd been on birth control and I was like, I do not ever want to touch that again. So that was our approach to it. And four months into marriage, I got pregnant and we were on our way to our, our duty station. We were at Fort Carson, Colorado for a couple years. And so that was finding out she was a girl was the sweet, my husband was deployed at the time, unfortunately. Um, he left, we hadn't even been married a year before I did deploy. And so he left, I found out it was a girl and it was the sweet, another little God wink of like, you were faithful to me in that hard season and I am returning to you what you lost. And of course, nothing can replace, nothing can replace my first daughter. But the beauty of that, even her just being a girl was so sweet. And um, so I was at the army hospital and I did the first, and at this point, I'm still very nursing minded or allopathically minded. And so I just did everything I was told. Again, I wanted to be the good patient, even if I didn't really get it. I didn't want to ask too many questions because I didn't want people to talk about me behind my back. Like, oh, this annoying girl asking all these questions. I just wanted to be the good, quiet. Uh, Anyways. And so I did the genetic blood work and got a call right after my husband had deployed that something was abnormal in it. And that it looked like I had a placental, I had a low uh, PAP A, which can sometimes show or lead to, uh, or sometimes is an indicator for placental insufficiency. So of course I'm like, I don't know what any of this means. I'm freaked out. Um, and sure enough, she's on the small side. And so that got me down the whole track of intrauterine growth restriction. And I was monitored my entire, I was on bed rest. So like use as little energy as possible. And I was pretty freaked out and getting ultrasounds every single week, uh, being monitored every 48 hours, doing non-stress tests. So by the time I got to like 38 weeks, I was like, well, and now at this point, I'm like, I'm having a natural birth. You are not sticking an epidural in my back again. And I was like, well, they were telling me I had to be induced at 39 weeks. I said, well, everything's great. So can we just keep monitoring me like you are? and go till I have her. And the doctor said, I don't want your baby to die. The classic. And I was like, okay, me neither. So sign me up. And I chugged a bunch of castor oil the day before my induction to try to make the baby come. And of course it just made me poop a bunch and super uncomfortable because she was not ready to come out. And I ended up having an induction. I did not have an epidural. The only reason why, though, was because I had 
the midwife that was on call, um, the nurse midwife that was on call, she asked me what I wanted to do for pain man- management. I said, well, I really don't want to do anything. I just, can I? <laughs> I don't want to take anything. Can I manage my own pain, please? And she, I was like, everyone's telling me that I have to get an epidural. She's like, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. She's like, I've done it. It's really hard. But with three out of my four, I had Pitocin and I didn't have an epidural. So I know you can do it. And I was like, okay, let's do it then. And I just, again, it was like my mom back in the day giving me that affirmation of like, okay, we can do this. And having her in that like very maternal role in that moment tell me, you can do this is all, it's like, that's literally all I needed. And I remember hitting transition and knowing I was in transition and looking at the nurse that was there. And I wanted her to give me like an empathetic, like I was in agony and I wanted her to give me an empathetic look. And she gave me this big grin because she knew what was happening. She knew we're going to have a baby probably in like 15 minutes. And I, she gave me this big grin and I thought to myself, I was like, that's a weird, like, but she, she sure enough, she knew. And I had her in like a push and she came out and it was just the most healing, beautiful experience, even in a hospital with an induction. <laughs> like it was so hard, but it was so healing having her there on my chest and getting to, she breastfed right away. And it was great, but I wanted to leave instantly after that. I could get up and walk. I was like, oh my goodness, I can go pee. Like, I don't have to have someone hold my hands and or make me or bring me a bedpan. Like, I can just go. I can get up and walk. Like, that was astounding to me after the last experience. Because I remember after I had my first, I thought to myself, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> the motherhood had been awakened in me, so I really wanted another baby. But I was like, whatever the heck that was, never doing that again. That was awful. <laughs> And so this is just a great experience, a great healing experience. Um, And I really wanted to get pregnant shortly. Well, my husband came back for the birth and had to go back overseas for about five months. And then he came back when she was about five months old. So I'm thankful he was able to be there. Um, But he was just kind of a bystander at that point, a very interested bystander. Like he wanted, he wanted to watch everything. It was super interested, but because he had been deployed, we didn't really get to do any prep together. And I know he would have really loved being able to be more of a coach type role, but we didn't really get to do that. Um, and so I was hoping to get pregnant because uh, I knew he was deploying again in about a year after he got back. So I felt like I had the clock on me, like I got to get pregnant before he leaves again. And I did not get pregnant. It was so hard for me to walk through that season because I felt like Am I doing something wrong? Like I got pregnant so easily the last time. And now here I am, like I'm not breastfeeding anymore. He's about to leave again and I can't get pregnant. And so I had finally just kind of surrendered the idea that I'm not going to get pregnant again. And we had already been pursuing foster care even really before much of that. Um, just knowing that that was something that we really wanted to do. Um with my heart for 
brokenness being what it was and having been on the other side of needing help and really wanting to be able to give that to somebody with a empathetic perspective. Cause a lot of people go into fostering and adoption as like a savior, but knowing having had, having had been the broken woman in the scenario, I knew that's not what they really needed. Um, they just needed support. And so being able to be a placeholder, I saw myself as a placeholder for a mom or a family who needed to get healthy before they could have their child back and getting healthy attachment to an adult. And so that way I would be able to give them back was the goal for us, which is the goal of foster care is reunification. And it took us a little bit. uh, We were willing to adopt Um, but that was not our goal was not to adopt. It was to help reunify and rehab these families and just to be a part of, of that. Um, so we were pursuing that. And then the month, like two weeks before my husband was deploying, we got a call about a baby in the NICU, which was funny because we were licensed for, uh, well, they didn't tell us he was in the NICU yet. (laughs) We didn't know that, but we were licensed for older kids. And there are a ton of people who are licensed only for babies because they think, oh, if I get a baby, there's no trauma there and there's no, which is not true. But that's kind of a common misconception. So a lot of people are only comfortable taking baby babies. So that was funny. We got a call about a baby. And uh, sure enough, he was medically fragile. And so everybody was kind of scared to take him. But they knew I had a nursing background and it didn't freak me out. So we got him and I found out I was pregnant. (laughs) on the last month before my husband deployed. And that was another little God wink of, hey, I see you, but my plan is for you to have, I wanted you to have, we would have not probably taken that placement, I don't think, had I known at the time that I was pregnant with twins. Did not know that at the time. (laughs) I went in, my husband deployed, I went into my, 10 week appointment. And sure enough on the screen, there were two. And I just sobbed because it was hilarious. I was like, of course, again, faithfully irresponsible. Why are you taking a foster placement two weeks before your husband leaves? Like you knew, cause I knew I was pregnant, but when we took the placement, I just didn't know it was two. And adoption is so often painted as this picture, especially in with evangelical Christian within evangelical Christianity as this perfect thing that happens and the videos all look like this there's this family that can't have kids and they're sitting at a table in this office and the adoption worker comes in with this little baby and you just see this utter bliss of this family receiving this baby. But what you don't ever see, because it doesn't sell adoption, (laughs) adoption is an industry. And that's part of the reason I'm thankful I didn't go through an agency. And I'm not, I think agencies are needed. I don't think they're bad. I I do think it is over the good parts, the beautiful parts are overemphasized at the expense of the reality of the pain that that baby 
one day is going to through I'm sure different kids handle it different ways and some kids may never care about their birth parents and they're totally content but some are so deeply wounded by that loss and if all you've ever seen is this perfect pretty picture as an adoptive parent you don't know what to do when that child comes to you and is hurt And then it turns into dismissing. It's easy to dismiss the child or make them feel like, I don't know, you owe us. We adopted you like we sacrificed to to adopt you and you owe us a certain amount of respect or you shouldn't even ask these questions. Or It's so easy for the adoptive parents to then be hurt that the child is hurt. And it's just this tangled web. And I wish there was more of a reality painted of there's a woman in another room that for one reason or another has signed her child away and she has to go dry up her milk and she has to confront the rest of her life with a missing with a child missing it is a deep deep loss and um it's not talked about like that very often. And so I've heard a story of a family who was trying to adopt and they had three, what they call failed adoptions where a mother had chosen them and they had walked through the rest of her pregnancy with her. And afterwards she decided to parent her baby. So that after three times, this mom realized, Oh my goodness, we're just loving this woman. This isolated, alone, scared woman, we're loving her so well that she feels like she can parent her baby at the end of this. And that is what I, I, I don't know in my own situation how I think everything where, like I said, I think everything happened the way that it was supposed to. And I don't know the end of the story yet. Um, she know my daughter knows that She's seen a picture of me and she knows who I am, but um, I've never talked to her. She's almost 10 um, and I'm ready. Like I'm, I'm ready for that, but it, it may never, that day may never come. I don't, I don't know. I highly suspect it will, but that is what made me so passionate when we were pursuing foster care to do my best for someone to not have to go through the loss that I did. Because it was way more painful than the picture had ever been painted for me. And after I had her, the pregnancy crisis pregnancy center kept calling me, wanting me to do a video for their thing. Because I was kind of like a success story, which I was. Um, And I was so thankful that they were there. But the way that I felt like I was just a, a pawn to fund their center, which of course I know they weren't thinking that, but that's how it felt to me. And I told him like, look, I'm not comfortable. I'm not ready to talk about this in a happy way. Like I'm, I'm not going to say what you want me to say. They finally settled. I was like, fine, I'll write something for you. And so I finally wrote the story kind of quickly for them to be able to send to their supporters. But even just the whole industry is really hard for me to interact with because I feel like a lot of it, again, 
is money. It's praying. It can be preying on people's isolation and their trauma and their sadness or their vulnerability, really. It's, it's able to prey on vulnerability. When we adopted our, our son, unfortunately, his mother passed away. Uh, but we built a relationship enough with his father to where he felt comfortable uh, terminating his own rights because he knew that we weren't going to go anywhere. Like we weren't going to, he's currently incarcerated, but we send him pictures until our son is old enough to say, look, I don't want you sending him pictures of me anymore or whatever. We'll send him a picture around Christmas so that he could see his son. And we've kept it pretty closed due to safety. But I think it's just, it's important to recognize that with adoption, with foster care, it cannot be because you want a child. That cannot be the only reason why we adopt. And that also gets into surrogacy, which I am not, I cannot uh, talk about without getting kind of heated about it. But fracturing the mother baby is something that even when a child is adopted as a baby, there's still something, there's something there for a mom and for baby. And being able to acknowledge that, I don't know how you present that on a large scale <laughs> uh, without making people seriously question whether or not they want to move forward with that. So of course I've adopted now and I see how beautiful it is. And I'm so thankful I've gotten to experience that. Um, so I want to be clear that I'm not poo-pooing adoption. I think there's a place for it. I think it's so important, but I think the reality of it has to be fairly and accurately portrayed. And the best way to do that is to talk to birth mothers and to talk to people who have been adopted, to talk to adoptees. But often they're not the picture that you get because it's not the pretty part. And they don't want to show that. So anyways, um, also because I had been tagged with IUGR, of course, now I'm high risk instantly. Oh, and having twins. Instantly high risk. And so that kind of began the cascade where I was like, this is kind of annoying. <laughs> like I was starting to be bothered by this how people were acting like they were keeping me safe. And I was like, I feel like you're not trying to keep me. I, I just started having those thoughts. And this is 2019, right before all the COVID stuff happened. My husband deploys. I'm again dealing with all this by myself with an 18-month-old kid with a newborn. The Anyways, it was just it's hysterical looking back. But we had a great church community that came in. It was my, was my family, basically. My mom came out whenever she could, but they really filled in the gaps for me and helped take Joseph to his visitations and all the stuff that I had to do because it's like a full-time job. <laughs> um, taking him all these places and having to keep all these boxes checked, it was a lot. And then having to keep my own boxes checked at the end of my pregnancy, getting scanned every week and going in every 48 hours to be monitored and all this stuff. And 
I remember them telling me, well, if it gets any, if your baby's getting any smaller, I think they were in like the first and third percentile at this point. They're like, if they get any smaller, like we're in trouble. And then the next week they were smaller. The numbers were worse. And they were like, okay, but they're, they're still kicking you. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I still feel them kick. They're, they feel great. They feel normal. Too. Okay. Well, we'll just let you keep going. And after like six weeks of this, I'm like, why am I coming in here all this time for you to ask me if my babies are, if I feel like my babies are okay on paper, they're getting worse, but you're not going to do anything unless they stop moving. Right. Like, you know, and then of course we make it to 36 weeks and I ask them again, well, guys, we've been doing this for 12 weeks now and everything's apparently okay. <laughs> Can we just keep monitoring? And they're like, nope. And at the time I didn't, my husband was able to come back for this birth as well. Thank goodness. Um, not because I was having babies, but because he had another training thing he had to do that happened to be in the States. And his commander was so kind and let him stay. I also went into preterm labor at 32 weeks while he was in the States. And he was like, hey, my wife's in preterm labor. And he was like, just stay. And I, and they ended up being able to stop it. And I went on to 36 weeks, but he got to stay the whole time, which was such a miracle. Um, but they basically were like, you can have a C-section or you can try to do it vaginally. You're just going to have the, the way they posed it to me was you're just going to have to deliver them in the wall, in the OR. And so in my mind, that was okay. We go to the OR and I just birthed my babies like I would in the labor room in the OR. I didn't even think to ask other questions about when you say that, what do you mean? Um, and so anyways, I was induced at 36 weeks due to hospital, due to protocol. And, um, I was bullied. It's hard. It was my choice to do it, but I was so torn again of, I ended up letting them place the epidural catheter, but I would not let them dose it because they were telling me, well, if you end up needing an emergency C-section, then we're going to have to knock you out and your babies aren't going to get you for hours. Like you're not going to get to be with your babies for hours after that. And of course, I, I knew I didn't need to do that. But I remember crying to my husband, like, I don't know what to do because, and I ended up making that decision just so I didn't look like somebody who didn't care about her babies. And just again, the power of that perception that I let people have over me is just, is crazy. I just didn't want them to see me as someone who didn't care about her babies. When really me making a different decision could have led to a very different outcome, a better outcome than what we got because I let them place the epidural, but I couldn't really move. So I was like on my back, I've got all these monitors on me because they're monitoring two babies. Um, of course, I had back labor because how do you not have back labor when you're, <laughs> when you've got two in there and it was, it was just, it was agonizing and I couldn't move and it was way worse than the first. Um, I felt I started losing it and 
they checked me because they thought surely she's in transition basically. And they checked me. And of course all the medical students are there too. Cause I'm having twins and they're like, Oh, she's only a six. And they checked again. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, only a six. And hearing that made me mentally quit because I, I was sure I was in transition and I was telling, and my husband was pretty sure too, because he's like, I remember what that looked like. <laughs> and when they said only a six, and then kind of like leisurely, just were like, okay, we're going to go away for a little while and then come back when it's really time. Within 20 minutes, they were flying me to the OR because I was having a baby. <laughs> like I was in transition, but they just, the cervix is a crystal ball. And they thought they had four more hours, you know, because a centimeter an hour. Anyways, so I go in there and unfortunately delivering in an OR is not the same as delivering in a labor room. They move me from the bed onto, and I hate talking about this, but I have to say it so that people, if somebody is listening to this, who's going to have twins, you need to know to ask these things. They move me from the labor bed to a flat surgical table. It's freezing in there. They take my gown off. So I am freezing. Strap my my legs at 90 degrees into stirrups, like strapped them into the stirrups. So I couldn't even grab them really to pull, to push. So I'm flat on my back with my, like physiologically, I don't even know how I got one baby out, to be honest. Um, but I was able to push my first baby out and she came out, she was screaming four, four pounds, three ounces, I think. Um, and they were the one, she was the one they were worried about, but she was great. And then they went to break my water and thankfully my husband's right there with me. And my husband, funny enough, is in medical logistics at the army. So he knows how all of this is supposed to work and he knows how this is supposed to look. And everything was chaos, utter chaos. He's like, we've been here for 24 hours knowing this baby is going to come. And you guys are freaking out that, oh, no, she's actually having her baby. Like, what? They had not counted their instruments. They didn't have a hook to break my water because they were like, the other baby's not descending. And her heart rate was starting to drop. So, like, we needed to break her water and pull her out. Someone had to scrub out to go get a hook to break my water. It was so bad. It was so bad. And I say all of this because this is a key for my husband for the future. Um, anyways, they ended up having to knock me out. And they tried dosing the epidural that they had placed and it didn't work. So I still had to be knocked out after all of that. Um, woke up in the ICU and was basically treat. I woke up sobbing in the ICU saying, where are my babies? And the nurse was like, why are you so sad? What's wrong? I'm like, where are my freaking babies, lady? Like, where's my husband? She's like, oh, he's with the, I was like, are my babies alive? Because where I left it, one of them was like dying. <laughs> so she, I had the first one vaginally and the second was an emergency C-section. Both perfectly fine. Did not need, uh, well, not perfectly fine. I won't say perfectly fine that neither of them died. <laughs> um, the second twin, because she had been under so much stress, had some serious blood sugar issues. 
Um, and so we gave her a little bit of formula in the hospital because um, they didn't even tell me, like, you can express some colostrum and give it to her. It was, no, we'll just give her a formula and just classic what you would expect. And I didn't know any better. Um, we left after 48 hours, no NICU time, no nothing. Praise the Lord. They didn't immediately just take them off somewhere because now I know like that's so much more common. But after that experience, my husband, I think was like, mm, that was supposed to be the safe place and I'm supposed to be your protector. And that was bad. That was not good. And I don't know. And it's crazy that they induced you at 36 weeks because they were measuring small. Why would inducing for small babies make any common sense, logical sense at all? It's They should be cooking way longer. I know. And I think intuitively, like, that was what made sense to me. But when you say, I don't want your baby to die, you plant that seed. And you just trust that that would ha- that that's what they see happen as if that's something that they see happen all the time but it's not true they never even they don't give people the chance to do anything different and so um i breastfed them and we had a great we had a great little time with twins i don't remember that year of my life but it was it was a great it was sweet and um i love having twins did you have your um, foster baby? Yes, we still had him. They're eight months apart. We have since adopted him. And he, uh, they're eight months. So I joke that they're the triplets. So I had two more girls. And then at six months, I started giving them some formula because I could not keep up. And they were measuring them so much. And again, I didn't know how to help myself. And I didn't know... There's just so much lacking support in terms of like wisdom that I now have, but I didn't have it at the time. Um, So I switched them over to formula, got my cycle back, got pregnant. (laughs) Seven months postpartum with the twins. I was like, oh my goodness, because it had taken so long to get pregnant with the twins. I thought like, I just thought that was going to be what it was again. (laughs) And it was not. And so again, being irresponsible, trying for a VBAC. Thankfully, the provider I had was supportive because a lot would say, you're supposed to wait 18 months before you even get pregnant after a C-section. So no, you're not allowed to tolak this baby. (laughs) Um, But she did. And again, it was the IUGR thing again. Now we're in 2020, which was not a good time. And so I hated going. I hated going. And I was, I would show up. She would do the Doppler, measure my belly and send me home. Like, I can freaking do this at home. I have a blood pressure cuff. If you want my blood pressure, I'll send you my blood pressure. But I hate having to come in here and wear this stupid mask and do all this dumb stuff that I don't agree with. It was, I was very disenchanted at this point. And I'd had friends now that had had home births. at this duty station we were at. And I seriously was considering hiring that midwife that they had had because she was so, she believed in that. She believed in how God designed birth and was supporting them in that. 
And that was so attractive to me. And we ultimately decided to stay with the hospital because it was free. And it makes you wonder, it's made me wonder, how many things in life have I done because it's the path of least resistance or financially because it's free? And a lot of times the good things in life are free, like free birth (laughs) is free. Turns out home birth is, can be free. Um, But at the time that was not even a fog of an imagination in my imagination. Same thing, almost 39 weeks induced because he was small. And at this point I'm like, I know I just have small babies for the love of God. I just have small babies. And I remember a doctor laughed one time when I was all panicky about my baby being small. I can't remember which one it was, probably the first. And uh, he laughed and he was like, you know, all he was foreign. He's like, you know, all of this percentile measurement stuff under the fifth percentile. There's always going to be babies under the fifth percentile because it's a percentile. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with them. So he was saying this to try to make me feel better that like, there's probably nothing wrong with your baby. It's just small. But we have this entire system of handling these babies that's based on if that there's going to be something wrong with them because they're small. And sometimes that does happen where there is true IUGR, but I firmly believe that a lot of those women naturally go into labor early. I think a lot of preterm labor. And of course we don't, they don't even look into this. Like the hospital system doesn't even look into this, but I firmly believe that a lot of preterm labor is probably placental insufficiency. Um, and our bodies just know baby's safer out than in. And at that point I trusted that to be true. I was like, I don't, I don't think my body's just going to random, the placenta is going to randomly stop working and my body's not going to respond to that. Like it responds to everything else that's happening in there with my baby. Anyways, so at that point, I was kind of just going along with the motions, knowing what it was going to be like. I was group B positive. And uh, I basically, why did I, I can't even remember. I knew that the antibiotic thing, I, I, w- I totally didn't believe any of it anymore, but I still did it. And I just... Part of me looks back. I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. But that was like the only logical thing to do at the time was, well, I don't want to have to stay in the hospital for 48 hours. So I'm just going to take the antibiotics because I know what I can do to support my body to help, you know, that situation. It's going to probably take me a while (laughs) to recover from that, but I can do it. Just went off to stay, just went off to stay in the hospital for 48 hours. Like dumb trade-off, very dumb trade-off. But apparently I thought that was smart at the time. But it's also showing you how badly you didn't want to be in the hospital. <laughs> yeah. But it was also the responsibility thing. I was so like, I was scared to say no. Because at that point, I didn't care what this lady thought about me. I did not care. But I didn't want to be seen. At, I didn't want to take that responsibility for myself and say, no, I'm not doing what you think is best. Because then that would make me responsible. And I was not there. I wasn't there yet. So he was born 15 minutes before I was supposed to get my second dose of the antibiotics. And I had to get two doses in order to not have to stay at the hospital for 48 hours. 
And at this point, my husband is like birth extraordinaire. And he knew the nurse did not think that I was, again, why do they never think you're about to have a baby when you're saying you're about to have a baby? I don't know. She didn't believe it. But my husband was like, you have 20 minutes before there's a baby. And I remember hearing him say that. And she was like, okay. And I was like, she doesn't believe him, (laughs) but he's right. (laughs) And sure enough, it was very fast and he was born. It was great. Um, But fast forward to my most recent birth, Um, my free birth, almost wild pregnancy. Um, At this point, we knew that my husband was going to be getting out of the military. We were planning on doing the 20-year thing to retirement. But with all the COVID stuff and him being a rogue individual, uh, we knew that it was – we saw the writing on the wall. And we knew either he was going to get kicked out or he was going to have to leave or something in between. That was a whole beautiful experience for both of us because we just, we got to see how bad all of, in the past three years, four years now, gosh, four years. Wow. We've seen how corrupt all of these systems that we were assuming were benevolent were and how important it is to really be examining everything. And we had to learn it kind of the hard way. But he decided, I'm getting out before you guys, before I'm a part of something that's going to ask me to do something worse than inject something into my body that I don't want to. And so that was the direction we knew we were heading. And so we this church community we have here, we moved here for this like-minded community because we're all kind of heading in this similar direction. And we're like, we know we can't accomplish in life and live the way we want to live, just our family. Like we have to have other people around us that are thinking this way and educating their kids this way. And we want our kids to marry people one day that have been raised differently than the norm, I guess. And so I knew my friend, the one friend that I had here, she had had five home births. So I was like, sweet, finally get to do this. And um, found out no midwife here, no certified nurse midwife would take me because I'd had a C-section before, even though I'd already be backed. Um, And the IUGR was kind of iffy. So they basically told me, and I, I was like, well, who will take me? I know you won't. That's fine. Whatever. And they're like, nobody will because our license won't allow it. And so I interviewed, um, a CPM because, but they have to be kind of underground here in North Carolina because they're technically not supposed to allowed to catch a baby, whatever. And I still, I saved the email from my husband because I forwarded the email response saying, we're not going to take care of you because you've had a C-section. I forwarded it to my husband. And I was like, this is some BS, man. Are you freaking kidding me? And he messaged, he emailed me back. Why do you want a midwife anyways? <laughs> and I was like, what? He was like, you want to pay somebody thousands of dollars to not want to do anything that she's going to tell you to do, to fight the entire time, and then to not want to call her when you're in labor because you don't want her to come mess up what you have going on like 
this is not a logical thing. He's like, why don't we just do it ourselves? I was like, do it ourselves? I thought he was joking, but he was not joking at all. And I found, I was, I listened to basically all of the free birth society birth stories. And I was like, oh my goodness, people do this. People do this. And I was like, awakened to learning the big awakening for me with this pregnancy was I think at my eight week appointment or I did schedule an appointment with the army before he got out because I wanted a proof of pregnancy because I knew I was going to need it to get a birth certificate which I don't know how I'm going to approach that in the future but for now I got the birth certificate (laughs) and um I walked in there and in the the exam room, it was very clear to me that this provider, we were not on the same page ideologically about what a woman is, what a man is, what God-honoring marriage is. And I was sitting there thinking, like, I would not trust this person to give me advice in literally any area of my life. I do not respect what this person has to say, yet I am going to hand her the keys to the most sacred thing that I'm going to do in my life. And then she came in and asked me why I didn't want to get done. The um, I was like, I'm literally just here for proof of pregnancy. Basically, I was like, I don't want to waste your time. You don't have to listen to my anything. Like, you don't have to do anything. I literally just want to prove pregnancy. And of course, she had to listen to my heart and do my blood pressure and all that stuff to chart it. And then she was like, well, I'm going to go ahead and put it in for you to get your second trimester, like genetic blood work. I was like, oh, I'm not doing that. And she was like, well, why not? I was like, well, we're moving. I didn't really want to tell her, like, I don't want to do it because I didn't want to fight her. I was like, I don't even want to be here. <laughs> um, but I told her, I was like, oh, we're moving. It does. I'll just figure it out when I get there, when we move. And she walks, she's like, I'll be right back. Walks out, comes back in. And she was like, well, I see you've done it with all your other pregnancies. Why don't you want to do it with this one? I was like, because I don't want to. And she was like, I just want to let you know, though. I'm going to go ahead. I'm still going to put it in for you. So if you change your mind, you can you can go get it done. But if, like, we need to know as early as possible if, there's something wrong with baby so we can decide what we need to do about it. Basically saying you need to be able to terminate. And I just, I left that appointment like almost laughing. Like again, the same person that I'm going to trust to give me wise, wise counsel for this life and for my own life is the same person that would refer me to kill my baby if I didn't want it or if there was something quote unquote wrong with it. And that just was the nail in the coffin for me. I was like, I cannot engage with the system anymore. And it's worth taking that responsibility on myself because really the responsibility is mine anyways. I just get to pretend like it's not mine. And thankfully, being married to somebody who's so willing to take that on himself, he was like, this is my duty. Like, I don't, he was kind of feeling like, I don't want to give this to somebody else. Like, somebody else shouldn't get to look at you down there, like, and be all up 
intimately involved in my wife as I'm standing there. And uh, I think I've seen recently, like, we wonder why so many men pass out, like, as they're watching their wives give birth. And it's like, I so don't think anymore. It's because they're freaked out by birth. I think it's because it's traumatic for them to see their wives basically being assaulted. Like, that's pretty traumatizing, honestly. I can see how that would make you pass out. Anyways, just confronting how much... This is a very spiritual experience for me. The whole pregnancy and birth. um, I've had to face more fears in that pregnancy that I did not think I had. And it was just the Lord constantly like, do you actually trust me? You say you trust me. You say you believe. You say you believe there's a divine creator, but all these decisions that you've been making have made it look like you practically you believe in evolution. You believe that there's not a divine creator based on how you've been acting. And so just really having to confront that in myself and having heard growing up so much, don't over-spiritualize things. Don't over-spiritualize things. I'm like, I don't think you can over-spiritualize things, to be honest, anymore. I think it is the physical and the spiritual are so much more connected than we will ever know. And having to confront that, um, it really came to a head for me in this pregnancy because uh, I've seen you say before, you birth how you live. And that has just been so true. You, if you look at the my births and then also my maturity and growth and wisdom, how I've chosen to birth has largely been an exact parallel. And it's very revealing It is very revealing because it's like the most intimate part of you trying to care for yourself and your, and your child. It is the most intimate part. What are you really going to turn to? Who are you really looking to? What are you really looking to for your safety and your security? And do you have an awareness of whether or not You have a false sense of security. I don't think most people do. And I didn't realize that I basically built a house of cards. And this pregnancy made a lot have to come crumbling down. And I think that's what's scary for a lot of people when they think about free birth is they know that that's going to make a lot of things in life come crumbling down. And you have to be willing to let it come down and rebuild Because once you uncover that, um, I read Yolande's book, Portal, and it's just like the perfect description of it is a, like each pregnancy and birth is like walking through another portal. The first one is nothing from maiden to mother. There's really nothing quite like that one again. But I think pregnancy and birth is a microcosm for all of motherhood. Because it can be painful. It can be uncomfortable. It makes you confront things in yourself you didn't know was there. And how you approach your pregnancy and your birth is almost like a good practice run. And it's I think each 
individual pregnancy and, and birth, if you leave it undisturbed, is going to prepare you perfectly for who that child is going to be. And I don't think we really realize that because you don't know the child yet. You don't know their personality. You don't know their intricacies yet. Um, but if you just walk through it, a lot of the things that I've had to practice in Rachel's pregnancy are things I've had to come back to after she was born and things I've had to deal with, like with her and her personality and, and with nursing and um getting her birth certificate even, I could go back to, okay, well, here's how I thought about this when I was pregnant with her. And here's how I thought about things when she was born. Apply that to now and look, I'm okay. So again, thankfully my family was pretty supportive, but I did the irresponsible thing. Had a baby in my basement without a midwife. And it was, I had six days of prodromal labor, which I didn't realize was can be very normal because I think most people at the first day of regular contractions, I think a lot of times people go into the hospital and it's not meant to keep going. But once you're there and I was four to five centimeters, like starting out. So if I were to go to the hospital having regular contractions at four to five centimeters, they'd book me right in and then it would stall out. And then they would tell me, Oh, your labor stalled out. You're on the clock. And then they would give me Pitocin, blah, blah, blah. I had six days of about eight hours of contractions that would go away every night. I thought every day was the day. They would go away at night. And then sure enough, one day, they just didn't stop. And she was born in three hours. So all of that work, and that's what I encourage people now, is like all that work your body's doing during those days is important. She was square into my hip. So I knew I was going to have some time, like, she was going to need some extra time. I just thought I was going to have a really long labor. Um, but it just turned out to be a couple days, which I think was way great, more gracious to me than if it was like a super long, like start to finish. I would take that all day and then have three hours like that. Um, but I had her in the water. She had a short cord. Um, and so it was hard for me to bring her up to my chest and she didn't immediately breathe and cry right away, which I was a little nervous about, but I had read that that could be so normal. So just kind of gave her some time. I ended up sucking out her mouth a little bit, but I didn't realize I had done that until I looked at pictures later because it's just so like in the moment, I didn't really realize I'd even done that until I was like, oh, I guess I sucked her mouth out. <laughs> so I kind of instinctually did that. Um, and my daughter, my she was five at the time. She got She wanted me to wake her up when the baby was born. So she was there with me through transition and she held my hand. She was so proud of herself for getting to be there. And we uh, did the blood typing and we looked at the placenta and the placenta was born about 45 minutes later. Um, and it was just so anticlimactic. I remember saying that to my husband. I was like, is this what birth is like supposed to be? Is this normally like if we just didn't touch it, is this normally how it would go? He's like, probably. <laughs> So after having all these climactic, stressful experiences, getting to just eat a steak at five in the morning, I told my husband, I was like, I want a steak right after this baby's born, partially for iron, partially because why not? Um, and he did that for me. And that was that. And so um, 
anyways, just watching him too get to be, because it was just me, him, his mom was there, but she was very, she did so good. She like took notes on when stuff was happening because she knew I would want to know that later. <laughs> um, but she was so good about being quiet and just staying off. And I felt so safe. And never once did I feel nervous about anything ever, which is just such a beautiful experience to get to have. Um, so, and now I'm pregnant with my seventh and I've never been more confident in just the journey that it is. It's now exciting. Instead of knowing that I'm starting this stressful whole thing, it's now I get to enjoy I get to enjoy this and learn. I know I'm going to have a lot to learn this time. Like you're never going to learn it all. Um, but I'm, I'm taking midwifery courses. Um, my goal, my vision is I know there's a lot of women at my church who want to, I think there's like eight of us that are pregnant right now. They want to have home births, but there's one midwife really that serves our area and she's an hour and a half away. And I'm just sick of having to outsource this sacred thing. And I really, I long to create a culture of women supporting women, like friends supporting friends where there's no stranger coming into the birth space anymore. There's just us walking with each other like we do in literally every other area of our life just treating it like every other area of our life. And then being able to model that for my daughters, I'm kind of, I'm knowing that I, I know that it's going to be a generational thing. Most things I'm realizing I need to be making like a 500 year family plan instead of like a my lifetime family plan, just because God works generationally. The more I read the Bible, the more I'm like, that was a lot of generations before that happen. And just thinking that way, how can I set my daughters up? Not how can I enjoy this, but how can I set my daughters up and my granddaughters up to enjoy this without even having to think about it? Where it's just second nature. It's like, why would you have your baby in a hospital? Like, I want that to be their default instead of the opposite. And so... You know, I'm more getting this training just so I can say I have some training um, because I'm pretty confident I won't have to use most of it. And I'm happy to sit on my hands. Um, but it is good to know the various scenarios that I have not personally encountered, but that can happen. Um, but it's more... I, I will never be licensed on <laughs> any kind. It's more just I'm trying to become the old lady that I wish I had right now. You know, I'm trying to gain the wisdom. And to be honest, I have not figured out yet how I'm going to see more births because I'm not personally comfortable going into a stranger's sacred space. And that seems to be the only way to get birth experiences is to either go do a bunch of hospital births or, and it's like, I just, so I don't know how I'm going to do that yet, but I'm willing to let God 
provide the experience that he knows that I need without me compromising what I'm comfortable with. Yeah, I have a question. I want you to speak yes. a little bit on, because I, I resonate with everything you say, the way you speak and the way you tell your story and, and especially your relationship with God and, and your free birth faced you with the truth of what you're putting your trust in. And I want you to speak to that because with all your medical births, you know, you did believe in God. You, you loved God then, but then your free birth opened everything up. I want you to speak to that. A lot of what we were going through in life at that time, it was a tangled web of experiences. Um, My husband, watching him give up this secure career, watching him stand firm and give up what everybody else seemed to think was no big deal and watching him be berated and treated horribly and lied about and just watching him refuse to wear a mask when and be counseled on it and threatened and just watching him endure that and moving and just, again, making all these irresponsible decisions because that was what faithfulness to the Lord looked like, continually gave me the confidence that this was just another area of that. And I had seen God be faithful going against what everybody else was doing and saying was the right thing to do and honestly was portrayed as the moral thing to do learning the difference between someone saying something is moral or is true versus actually it's like some trust in chariots and some trust in horses but we trust in the name of the Lord our God what are the chariots and horses that everyone says are the right thing to do that everyone says is the safe thing to do or you're irresponsible if you don't do it this way being able to confront that fearlessly and say, I will trust in the name of the Lord, my God and what he says and what he stands for and watching him against all odds, kind of in the eyes of the world, give us these experiences that we now would not trade for anything. We would have never moved here if my husband had just kept going with the flow We would not have grown. My daughter would, who knows what they would have found wrong with my daughter during her pregnancy that could have led to who knows what interventions for me, for her. Um, I think it's hard because there's so much, when you make the decision that the Lord, that honors God, we so often don't get to see the opposite or you don't, you don't get to see what would have happened had you not. And so I guess ultimately it's making the uncomfortable decision when what the Lord would have you do does not make sense to the world. Choosing to do it anyway because we have thousands of years of history in the Bible of seeing him be faithful to his people over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then also having our own experiences in our lives where we've seen him be faithful over and over and over and over and over again when we didn't deserve it. It sounds like 
I think even to a lot of people that are Christians, it sounds like over-spiritualizing, but I, again, I don't think there's such thing as over-spiritualizing. I think everything that we need, um, can't remember what verse it is, but there's a verse that says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful. It's basically useful for everything. All we need is there. And I truly believe that. And I think by the Holy Spirit, he helps us to apply his word to our specific scenarios. And it might look a little different for each person. But he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And that's what I just claimed. I claim that all the time. I'm like, Lord, you have said, I know I lack wisdom, but you've said you will give it to me if I ask you for it. So I'm asking for it. And I trust that with, you know, like with this current pregnancy, if I'm asking him for wisdom and there's something wrong that could be helped by medical intervention, I 100% trust that he would give me the wisdom to know I needed to seek help. Um, I don't, yes, I trust my body, but I, I trust him working through it. I don't trust my body in and of itself. I trust how he designed it and how he can use it to show me what I need to know. And that's the same thing going back into like my other healing is I don't, uh, I don't know the, I think German new medicine, I want to say it's mostly, uh, rooted in evolution, like the evolutionary biology, but it also makes perfect sense to me with a divine, with a, um, intelligent designer. And I think he totally uses physical things to give us spiritual cues. And sometimes we need that. Sometimes we don't have the introspective ability or the, the wisdom to discernment to see very, very deep spiritual things in ourselves that need to be addressed. And I, I fully believe he uses our physical bodies sometimes if we're willing to listen and look for it. Uh, willing to over-spiritualize our physical symptoms. I think there's a lot of healing that can take place when you're willing to, to listen, but that comes with believing, trusting that God is the one that is showing you these things and it's him behind it all. And it's him that is trying to get us to grow. I think of, uh, I think it's first Timothy two fifteen. 15. It says, women, yet she will be saved through childbearing. If she continues, I think it's in faith, love and self-control or something like that. And I truly believe that pregnancy and birth, childbearing in general, which can also include infertility. It can include child rearing. It's, it's not just labor and delivery. It's childbearing. It's like the whole thing of bearing children as a woman, periods, harm, hard periods. That is part of childbearing. All of that. Um, I truly believe when we can lean into that and realize like he says that's, we're not saved. Like we don't go to heaven because we bear children well, um, but we are sanctified and we are matured. I think as women, primarily through those childbearing focused things. And so when you look at pregnancy and when I looked at this free birth and thought, of course, this is I, all this stuff is coming up. This is a primary means of sanctification for me. His word says that. 
And we so it's so easy to balk at that saved through childbearing. Okay, how can we talk around this? Well, um, you're not actually saved, you know, through childbearing. And it's just trying to make all these excuses for what it doesn't mean because we don't want to have to confront that. But I truly believe that even if you can't have children, that if that is what the Lord has made your heart, then that is the piece of childbearing that is going to change you. If you lean into it, it's like Hebrews 12 says, um, all discipline for the time seems painful rather than pleasant, but it bears the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. For those who are trained by it. And we can either lean in and be trained by it, or we can just kick against it and try and bury it and try and avoid it and try and shove it to the side or find any excuse to get rid of the pain. And that's why I'm sure people have pain-free births, but I'm never going to intentionally pursue, like my goal is never going to be a quote, pain-free birth. Um, if I have one, great. I think it's possible. But I think when we lean into whatever pain the Lord has called us to endure with him, it bears beautiful fruit. And I'm just, I'm seeing, I say that so confidently because I've seen it in my life the past 10 years and it makes you more and more fearless because it's like, there's nothing that can be thrown at me that I'm like, oh, that would do me in. <laughs> like I've seen him bring us through hard stuff. So the fearlessness is ultimately what leads to this confidence. But I don't think you can have the fearlessness without having to take steps of faith in order for God to step in. Because if you never step out into anything scary, he never has to catch you. You never give him the opportunity to show you who he is. And as hard as things have been the past couple of years, it's been the best couple of years of our life, which I think a lot of people don't get to say that. But I hope that answers your question in terms of the the faith aspect of that season of life and free birth. Yeah, I love it because your language is so different than my language, but the truth is the same. Like I, mm -hmm. I talk about all of these things and your language is so different than mine, but I resonate with it because it's the same truth. It's using yeah. the challenges and pain in life um, to gain more trust in, in God, in your body, in life itself. And it's through these experiences that the relationship, but, but it's a choice because you can use the pain and challenges of life to say, to be a victim and to say the world is against me and God is against me and be a victim to God. And, and that's our free will on earth is there's these two paths and you can be a victim to God and be a victim to your own body and to your baby and to motherhood and to everything or like you say, it can bear the sweetest fruit imaginable. And that's your life experience. And it is mine too. I heard someone say, baskets of fruit are heavy, 